So good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Joel. Um, if you're joining us online, I know you can't see me, but it is still my privilege because I'm sharing God's word with you today. Um, for those who are just joining us, uh, haven't been here, uh, we're working verse by verse by verse through the entire gospel of Luke. And today we finish chapter 17, where Jesus is going to tell us about his second coming. A topic that has fascinated American Christians for centuries now. By show of hands, how many of you have heard of the Great Disappointment of 1844? The Great Disappointment of 1844. I see no hands. Let me tell you, in the 1830s, a rather uneducated farmer named William Miller, he studied the numbers that you find in Daniel's prophecy in chapter 8, and he did some theological math, and he concluded Jesus is coming back in 1843. And he began to preach the soon end of the world, published a book. He had upwards of 50,000 followers by 1843, believing it was the end of the age. And 1843 came and Jesus did not return. <clears throat> so Miller publicly apologized to everyone. And then someone came up to him and said, hey, you used the wrong Jewish calendar. Which point the people rejoiced because then he knew the exact date. April 18th, 1844 was the day Jesus was going to return. So the followers circled their calendar. They went out and spread the news. It got hyped up even more. The end of the world was near. April 18th came and Jesus did not return. Now his followers were very disappointed as he publicly apologized again at I believe a camp meeting four months later in August. Suddenly, someone spoke up and said, you were right all along, Miller. It is the midnight hour. And in fact, I know the exact date God has told me, October 22nd, 1844. And the crowd rejoiced because Jesus was coming. It was only months away. The word went out. Even more Americans believed. In fact, so much so that many of them quit their jobs. They left their crops unharvested in their field. I mean, what's the point if the world's going to end, right? They're taking this seriously. Bankers, it was in the papers, bankers and the U.S. Treasury reported that people were showing up with the bank with wads of cash because they had defrauded the bank and they wanted to get right with God before the end. It was all over the papers. So front page news in the October papers and the great day came. October 22nd, 1844, they say maybe 100,000 people in America were waiting on the hillsides for the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus did not return on October 22nd, 1844. Do you see why they called it the Great Disappointment? Now, if they had taken Jesus' words we're about to read in Luke 17, they could have avoided all this. Jesus is about to repeatedly tell people, don't be deceived. No one knows when I'm going to return. Now, some of you are laughing a little bit. This may not be a word for you today. You're not one easily taken in. There's also a word that Jesus has for you who are not easily fooled. What's that, Joel? Let's hear God's inspired word from Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Let us take it in while it is still the day of salvation. I invite you to look in your bulletins. I have it printed there. Or to turn to Luke chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 20. 
Now hear the word of our God. Being asked, speaking of Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the sons of man, son of man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. But likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just read your word of truth. But seeing your word with these natural eyes is not enough. This text tells us we need your spirit to open another set of eyes if we are to profit from it at all. Will you please take away any scales which keep us seeing how much you treasure us in your son Jesus and that he has brought the kingdom in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The great disappointment. Well, last week we saw another great disappointment where actually the shoe was on the other foot. Jesus was disappointed there was no second coming. Ten lepers had come begging Jesus for mercy. They had a disease that was not only killing them, but it had banished them from their community, their old lives. They couldn't see their family. They couldn't go to worship. And Jesus showed them mercy. He healed all ten of them. But only one made a return visit. Only a Samaritan returned, fell at Jesus' feet to give him thanks and gave God glory. The nine did not return. There was no second coming for Jesus. Picture the great disappointment on Jesus' face when he says to the one who came back, Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? We could rephrase that, why did none of my own people return to me? We saw that these Jews simply wanted the healing, not the healer. Nine Jews were happy to have their old lives back, and they saw no further need for Jesus in their lives. They had their health. They were reunited with their family. 
They could resume their careers. Now, I have no doubt if you walked up to them and asked them about Jesus, they would have told you all that he'd done the rest of their days, like so many of you and I know. Oh, Pastor Joel, you're a preacher. Oh, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. But as they're telling me this, I know it's been ages since the last time they came to worship him. They have no desire to fall at Jesus' feet and to spend their lives being consumed with giving God glory. Why is that? Why don't these Jews, his own people, come back to Jesus? Why is it that folks know Jesus' blessing, but they have no further desire in their lives? I want to argue today that it is a vision problem. They have eyes, but do not see. Our 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt, he told of a childhood story when he went on a hunting trip and he couldn't hit a single thing and he couldn't figure out why. Until a few days later, he wrote, one day they read aloud an advertisement in huge letters on a distant billboard. And then I then realized something was the matter. For not only was I unable to read the sign, but I could not even see the letters. I spoke of this to my father and soon afterwards got my first pair of spectacles which literally opened an entirely new world to me. I had no idea how beautiful the world was until I got those spectacles. I had been a clumsy and awkward little boy, and while much of my clumsiness and awkwardness was doubtless due to general characteristics, a good deal of it was due to the fact that I could not see, and yet I was wholly ignorant that I was not seeing. The nine didn't return because they couldn't see. They were spiritually blind to the clear message in this healing. Today, Luke follows up with those who are interested in seeing a whole new world, very interested in seeing a whole new world, the kingdom of God. And they show that they're wholly ignorant to its reality right in their midst. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some Pharisees come up and ask Jesus when the prophesied kingdom would come. Now these Pharisees, they are the Bible scholars of their day, and they love to debate this topic. They would look at the signs of the times in light of the biblical prophecies, and they're thinking that the kingdom of God would come in observable displays of power. They were looking for the day when the anointed king that God promised would come wipe out the Romans. The unbelievers would be kicked out of the land. The glory days of Israel would return. This was what they were looking for. And Jesus, what was he doing? Way back when we started, Jesus' ministry started with him preaching the kingdom of God. This is, his, this is what he's always preaching, the kingdom of God. And because of that, these Pharisees, this prompts them to, oh, well, Jesus, why don't you give us your calendar date? And this question reveals that you can know your Bible and be spiritually blind. Jesus says the kingdom of God will not come in ways observable to these eyes. Because he adds, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that's the right translation. I know some Bibles have other words there. The point Jesus is making is the kingdom of God is in your midst because I'm the king and I'm here. Jesus' ministry. Do you remember a thousand years ago, back when we were in Luke 4? He got up 
and he read from the prophecy of Isaiah 61. He read, the Spirit of the Lord, he's standing in front of the people with the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sat down and said, and this has now just been fulfilled in your hearing. What was Jesus saying? The long-awaited time of God's favor is now. You ever heard the expression, don't write, let your mouth write a check that your life can't cash? You ever heard that? Don't write, let your mouth write a check that your life can't cash. What Jesus is saying is, Isaiah wrote a check 700 years ago, and my life is the cash. For three years, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom's arrival in his person. Sure, he has not been inaugurated yet, but he has arrived. He's proclaiming liberty to people whose biggest problem is not their physical plights. It's not the political rulers. It's not the economic volatility maybe of this day. Their biggest problem was that they stand guilty of sin and full of shame before God Almighty. All of you have a creator. The reason you're here right now is because God placed you on this earth and he has expectations of you. And we all know, because our consciences tell us, we have not honored God with our lives. We have wanted to live selfishly. And Jesus came, and right away in chapter 5, he declared, I have the power to forgive sins. This is the greatest news anybody could have ever heard. This is good news for all of us poor sinners, because we all are. And to prove his power to forgive sins, this is why Jesus began to perform what Daryl Bach calls Audio visuals of deeper realities. Audio visuals of deeper realities. Jesus is giving previews of the coming kingdom glory. He knows that the kingdom of God, there will be no blind people, no lepers. There will be nobody with diseases. And so he's actually giving kingdom previews by healing people, healing lepers, raising the dead, curing the blind, things nobody had ever seen before. And the Pharisees had witnessed these miracles, but they can't see the deeper reality. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus in John 3? He said, Jesus, we know you come from God because no one can do the signs you do. No one. And Jesus said to him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, Nicodemus, you need a spiritual rebirth in order to see the spiritual realities these signs are pointing towards. And what did Nicodemus then do? He began to ask Jesus silly questions, much like these Pharisees are doing right here. Jesus, when will the kingdom come? Luke shows us there's probably nothing sadder than knowing your Bible back and forth, up and down, and yet you never see the anointed king that all the scriptures are always pointing us to, who gave, came to give eternal life to all who would simply believe and accept the gift in faith. Now, Jesus turns to his disciples because we're still full of questions, aren't we? Even though we do see. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
Now the disciples do see Jesus, but not very clearly yet. So Jesus uses this Pharisee question as a teaching moment to prepare them for the future. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer, to be crucified, to die for their sins. And he says, and by the way, afterwards, you disciples are going to go through fiery trials. You're going to go through deep waters. And he says, Peter, James, you're going to face some awful days. And Peter, you're going to remember that day when your mother-in-law was dying and I saved her. James, you're going to remember that day you thought you were going to perish in that storm on the boat. And you're going to wish I was there to hush that storm like a puppy with a word. You guys are going to desire my presence when you're seeing your world is being rocked. If you're a Christian believer, you get this. Aren't there days you just shake your head as you look at the mess our world is in? It's frightening to witness the violence, the corruption, the promiscuity of our day. Don't you just pray at times? Jesus, please come quickly. Just set things right. Don't you see what's going on in this world? And Jesus knows that this longing for his return is going to make us prone to fall for false teaching. Teachers will come. And they're going to have a news crisis in one hand and they're going to have their Bible in the other. They're going to say, look here, Russian invasion. Look here, Ezekiel 38. And Jesus says, check this out. He says, you don't actually need your Bible or social media to figure out my return because you're going to be the first to know along with everybody else. Kids, when there's a thunderstorm, do you need your parents to say, hey, look outside. Right. You can see the lightning. You can hear the thunder. Jesus says, my return is going to be the greatest global lightning show ever in the history of mankind. Nobody is going to miss it. Yet, many still try to figure out what Jesus says we cannot know ahead of time. I've lived through and I've studied in depth America's long history of great disappointments. This is why I might actually be a great disappointment to you if you want to discuss the topic of eschatology with me. I'm, I will talk about it, but it's just not that interesting to me. I have other things higher up on my priority list. I grew up... Do you know what the number one selling book was in the 1970s? Anybody? The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, another fairly uneducated guy. He wrote this book, and it was the most popular book in the 70s, the decade I was born in. He claimed that the formation of modern Israel meant that the next generation was the coming apocalypse, Jesus' return. Our own local Lester Summerall, back when I grew up, and there's only five channels if you didn't have cable. He was big, and he prophesied again and again the year 2000, the year 2000. I remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, sold millions. Harold Camping, a decade ago, right? And false teachers have come out of the woodwork, especially in 2020 with all that was going on. And a nationally famous preacher I grew up watching came out of retirement just in February to announce Putin's invasion is a clear sign of the apocalypse. Friends, look at verses 25 to 30. The exact opposite is true. Jesus says, my return will not come when there's extraordinary headlines, when there's unusual events happening in the world. Jesus says, do you know what's going to be happening when I return? Backyard barbecues. Couples saying I do. It's going to be the same old, same old. When it's time to invest in stocks, the market's finally moving. When you're taking your kids to soccer practice, when you're planting your garden, 
Jesus says, I'm going to come when life is as normal as normal can be. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came in and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, if we were shaking our heads, if we were giggling, and I heard some giggles at how easily some folks get fooled, you need to see here the opposite and more dangerous error that you are prone to. It's the error that I'm prone to because I've heard so many wolf cries. I can say I'm generally inoculated to what global folks actually see rightly. Friends, we are far too comfortable if we're not constantly thinking about the Lord Jesus' return. The folks on the hillsides who are wearing the Advent robes, who have left their jobs and their crops, who are making amends with folks they have wronged, they're actually in a better position than us because they're prepared. They may be deceived, but they're prepared. Do you notice that Jesus spends more verses talking about the need for readiness than he does warning us not to be deceived? He gives two examples of Old Testament folks who were prepared. Noah spent his whole life building a boat in the desert. And Peter says he was preaching to his neighbors of the judgment to come. And people laughed at crazy Noah as they enjoyed the same old, same old. And then it started to rain. And the floodwaters came. And only Noah escaped because he was prepared. And of course, God promised to never judge the world with water again. So Jesus follows up with, a judgment of fire, Sodom. And only righteous Lot was prepared and escaped. Every person in Sodom perished. Like that. Will we be ready? Or will we be anesthetized by earthly amusements? When Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, which we confess every week, will we be prepared? The 24-7 message of our culture is, Life is short, enjoy it. The 30-minute message you're hearing from Jesus today is eternity is long. Prepare for it. Jesus is being very serious here, isn't he? But let's remember he's on his way to the cross. The closer we get to chapter 23 and the cross, the more serious Jesus is becoming. I hope you're sensing this. Because the cross is the place where God's judgment of fire, this baptism of fire, is rained. The Father pours it out on his son, Jesus. The baptism Jesus endured so that you and I might be saved from that same judgment. Jesus is asking you, are you as serious about me as I am about you? I'm greatly encouraged actually here by the choices of Noah and Lot because neither of them were pillars of virtue if you go on and read about them. They were flawed, but they took appropriate action when they heard the word of the Lord. And you and I are hearing the same word of the Lord today, so we need to repent of our unreadiness and start ark building. Start ark building. What do you mean, Joel? How am I supposed to be ark building? By being about your father's business, especially when the world is panicking. 
there's a story about an unexpected eclipse that took place in early colonial America, which caused a number of state legislators to panic, and they moved to adjourn. And one of them spoke up and said, Mr. Speaker, if it is not the end of the world and we adjourn, we shall appear to be fools. If it is the end of the world, I should choose to be found doing my duty. I move you, sir, that candles be brought. We need not panic over world events if we're doing what God has called us to do. In fact, this is our opportunity to light our candles before our panicking neighbors. John Calvin said it is the church's tax to make the invisible kingdom visible before a watching world. To be looking for opportunities to show people glimpses of heaven. We may not be able to heal lepers, but we can do those kinds of things to show people glimpses of heaven. Things that reveal that we are living and longing for a far better world than this one here. And Jesus goes on to say, verse 31, On that day, let the one who is on the rooftop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. This would be a verse I would encourage you to memorize. Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Why? Well, you kids will like this. First, it's the shortest, tied for the second shortest verse in the Bible. Easy to remember. Second, because Jesus slips this Old Testament example in as a warning. A warning to how close you can be to glory and escaping the judgment and yet not make it and be lost forever. Notice her name is never recorded. That says something. You see, in her day, think about this. Lot's wife was as close to God as you could possibly be. She lived her life as the member of the only family of God on earth. She may have actually left the pagan land to come to Canaan with Abraham. She was related to the father of our faith, Abraham. She was married to righteous Lot. Everyone would have assumed, looking at Lot's wife, here is someone who is right with God and on her way to glory, she's ready. But the day came, and she was like the one on the rooftop. She was like the one in the field. And the word came to her, it's time to go. And she started off well, but then she turned back, and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she turn back? Because she had left her heart there. That's where her heart was. She had not given her heart fully to the Lord Jesus. Her arms were wrapped tightly around her life in this world, trying to preserve it. Just as we know Cart should get this probably better than about anybody, I think. You know, this is kind of like the North Pole for adult people in America. I spent 20 years of my life building the most expensive toys you just about can. I couldn't imagine just thousands of them I built. These expensive RVs that we send out with all these toys. These are like home on wheels with just all the gadgets. We're like the elves, the North Pole elves here in Elkhart, slaving away so that all these rich and wealthy people in America can have wonderful times going out and experiencing the world. We need to remember Lot's wife. Every time there's a new exciting toy or a new trip or a new... You need to have that verse come to your mind. Remember Lot's wife. 
because you need to see this as a gift from the giver and say, Father, don't let this capture my heart. Let this, in fact, be an aid to show me how good you are to me so that my heart might belong more to you. Thank you for this. We can enjoy the things of this life. But when they capture our heart, we can be like Lot's wife. I sat there for a little bit thinking late last night. How many Americans who are Christians on that day when Jesus returned are going to be looking back? Looking back at their careers, at the sports they loved, at the trips they had. How many are going to be looking back and never make it? I've told you again and again, I believe consumerism is the number one idol in our nation. We are discipled to consume nonstop, and you get it 24-7. I'll struggle with the two. I think my biggest struggle would be to actually reach the end of Luke's gospel and get to that last sermon, and Jesus would say, Oh, Joel, I'm returning now. And I'd be like, No, Jesus, I don't want, I want to finish my sermon series. It's been so long on. Right? We so want things in this world. We invest our lives in them. We've got to be ready to go because, as he says, verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in bed, one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. We have to be loosing our hold every day on this world as we wrap our arms around our Lord Jesus more and more and more because the day is coming. You cannot give your heart wholly to the Lord Jesus and fall. You need to give your heart wholly to the Lord Jesus and fall at his feet regularly in worship of him for all he's done. You can't be like the nine who said, thank you, Jesus. I can now have my best life now and I'll talk great about you. You have to be the one who only wants Jesus, period period, and lives to lose their life here so that they can preserve their forever life with him in glory. You know, earthly relationships we see in Lot's wife, earthly relationships with other believers, they won't save you. Not even being married to a Christian will save you. You may be sleeping next to a spouse who's a Christian, but your arms around them are not going to take you where they go, or if it's the other way around and you stay. I could care less about the debate there. You're going to find your grip on other Christians does you absolutely no good if you don't have your own grip on Jesus Christ. You may be grinding with other Christians, laboring hard, but that won't save you either. There will be a separation from those who believe and those who do not believe, those who love Jesus and those who love this world. Can you imagine the scene? Two being separated. I think the disciples are envisioning this scene. In verse 37, they say to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Mike's smiling. What are you going to do with this, Joel? <laughs> well, at least let's give the disciples some credit. They learned from Jesus' response to the Pharisees that when is the wrong question. When is not the right question. So they say, uh, what's it? Where, Lord? <laughs> I'm not really sure why they asked that, other than it's better than asking what. <laughs> Nor do I get Jesus' cryptic answer here. Where the corpse is, there the vultures, or it could be translated eagles, will gather. Because Jews don't look at eagles as wonderful birds. They see them like the big buzzards that we look at. That's 
My best guess is that Jesus has already spoken of his coming suffering earlier, right? And he's going to become that corpse on Judgment Day, laying down his life for us on the cross. And the Romans will kill him. And do you know what their symbol was? The eagle. Is this a Psalm 22 sort of prophecy where Jesus sees himself with the beasts coming around to destroy him? Or is it simply that anyone who does not fall at Jesus' feet to glorify and glorify God remains spiritually dead? And the carnivorous birds are closing in like we hear in Revelation 19 for that feast. Either way, let's just make sure we're praying, that we're preparing and praying for eyes to see Jesus. J.C. Ryle makes a keen observation about the two comings of Christ. He says the Jews were blind to Christ's first coming because they were looking for a king who came to reign and not a king who came to suffer. We are prone, he says, to the opposite problem. We're blind to Christ's second coming because we believe in the king who came to suffer for us. And well, we feel entitled. But we're not looking for the king who came to reign. And before whom every knee will bow one day when he does, when you see him, you will bow whether you want to or not. I pray that we'll all be glad to do that because we've already been practicing during our lives here on earth. The Lord Jesus is here in our midst. He is wherever the word is faithfully preached, where the sacraments are administered. He is in our midst right now, and he is looking at each and every one of us. And whether you see him clearly or not, Jesus sees you. If you're having vision problems, Please don't leave here without asking, talking to me or Victor, Dave, and sitting down and let us pray for you. Let us pray for you. I plead with you. Don't leave here if you're not seeing Jesus clearly. We want to see God give his spirit to you so that you might be reborn for a better life. If you do see Jesus, my question is, are you responding to his lordship? He wants to know if you are as serious about him as he was about you when he came to earth, lost his life for your sake. Is it any bad request for him to ask you to lose your life for his with all he's going to give you? Are you ready and longing for his return? You see, Jesus doesn't want to simply be your fire insurance policy. He wants to be your everything and he's worthy of it. Are you longing to be with the king and in the kingdom that he offers to anyone who will believe. I think there's an easy litmus test I want to close with. Ask yourself, why do you desire to go to heaven? Why do I desire to go to heaven? Nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But the way you can know if you're ready is if you desire heaven over this world. Do you hunger for heaven more than you hunger for this earth? Or do you only hunger from heaven because you don't like hell as the alternative? Are you holding fast to this world, gripping it tightly, grasping for all you can get? Are you, is your life one of a letting go of this world more and more each and every day? Sure, enjoying God's good gifts, but you're letting go because you realize that more and more that all these longings you have for anything in this world they're longings that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world.
May we all have eyes to see that everything here is merely diminishing pleasures. They're all fading away. They're placed in your heart by God as heavenly homing beacons to draw us to his glory so that we may spend the rest of our days preparing for his return. We're going to go through some fire trials. We're going to go through some waters over our heads. These are actually helps so that we can be cured of loving this world too much. This is a serious sermon because Jesus is a serious Savior. Let us pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is entirely possible that this is the very last prayer we will ever pray before our Lord Jesus returns. So we beg you to answer us. We pray that you may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we may have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance. May we come to discover what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you have worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. May we be given eyes to see the beauty of our King and live to serve him and his kingdom for all our remaining days. To the praise of your matchless grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.